What led to the rise of fascism? Why would ordinary peaceful people turn on their neighbors? How did we get here? Again. Welcome to Sentience, a podcast from Trinity University about how people experience and understand the world. I'm your host, Kyle Gillette, the Acting Dean of Arts and Humanities. Today, I'm talking to Jordan Nelson about fascism and violence. Jordan is a senior at Trinity, majoring in political science, history, and philosophy. On this episode, we discuss her summer research fellowship work titled The Fascist Subject as Object, Understanding Carl Schmitt's Preparedness to Kill as a State Mechanism. Jordan is currently working on an honors thesis in history about reactions to Hannah Arendt's writing about the trial of the SS officer Adolf Eichmann. She's also working on a philosophy thesis on revolutionary terms in education spaces. And finally, a multimedia installation about Nazi propaganda in online alt-right spaces for Trinity's Autumn Festival of the Arts. Her work, as she puts it, is intentionally provocative. And she urges listeners to engage in much-needed discussion about state violence and imaginative ideologies. The questions raised in Jordan's work could hardly be more urgent. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being on Sentience. Yes, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I first came across your research and invited you because you did this summer research on the preparedness to kill and these ideas from Carl Schmidt. Can you talk a little bit about how you became interested in that work? Oh, for sure. I began my my studies here at Trinity focusing on a lot of international relations. And at first I wanted to do international law. I took some classes that dealt with that. And the more and more I took these classes, I came to think that the real threat to international democracy is fascism. And I believe it's something in philosophy and in political science that is kind of understudied in the way that it used to be studied. We're not asking these burning questions anymore about why certain atrocities can happen due to fascism. And in modernity, it's creeping up on us very, very slowly. One of the questions that you pose is how did we get here and how are we getting here again? What is creeping fascism look like? What is the nature of fascism? I take fascism, and as the thinkers did before me, to have a sort of authoritarian attitude when it comes to expression, when it comes to freedom of speech, when it comes to democracy. Fascism has many different forms. Fascism acts as an ideology more than it does as a practice. And I believe that's very important to distinguish because when people ask, oh, how is this fascist? Like what exactly makes it fascist? For sure, we can point to linguistic terms and we can point to words that are being used in conversation or in law. But the most important thing is to see what is similar between now and the historiography before us. Currently, we see fascism and anti-Semitism. We see fascism in the silencing of the LGBTQ community and the hate against trans people. We see fascism against a majority of the minority communities in the United States and abroad, especially in Europe with the rise of like the AFD party in Germany 
And what connects all of these doctrines, these modern doctrines to fascism, I believe comes from these imaginative ideologies that Hannah Arendt talks about. It's these imaginary threats that are posited onto a group of people that are susceptible to these imaginative ideologies and then spread and promoted that are incredibly hateful towards certain groups. Can we talk a little bit about the historical context of your research in Weimar Republic, how Nazism arose? Can you talk a little bit about that? So briefly, World War I just happens. Um, the Weimar Republic is a country that was put in place in Germany. Germany as a state that we know is different than Germany in the past. However, the Weimar Republic is set up and given a constitution following the Treaty of Versailles. And the argument of some Germans, including Karl Schmidt, who we'll get into in a little bit, is that this constitution that was put in place post-World War I to make Germany a liberal democracy was imposed upon them. And that this constitution had, had no right to exist and to govern and lead the German people. However, I should note that this constitution is one of the most progressive that we've ever seen in the 1920s and 1930s. I tend to think that it is more progressive than the U.S. Constitution and the rights that it guarantees. However, the bureaucracy and the legislative systems in Weimar Republic were topsy-turvy, to say the least. It was a multi-party system, multi-multi-party system. And it was very difficult to navigate. And so you have legal theorists start to come out, Carl Schmidt, making these very rhetorical arguments about how liberal democracy is invalid. What was his opposition to liberal democracy? It was that it was not, in fact, a democracy. And this is where the rhetorical argument comes into place. He argues that the democracy following the Treaty of Versailles is not true democracy because the Constitution that was put in place by the Allied powers was not levied by the people. Only a real constitution levied and written directly by the people can actually be democracy. So that, that is the first seed he kind of puts in. And fascism grows. It sounds like in some of what you've been investigating, who counts as the people is partially what's at stake. Mm-hmm. You know, which people are involved in Schmidt's idea, this ultra-nationalist idea, which, as you say, is riddled with anti-Semitism. Can you give us a little background information on Carl Schmidt and how he came to this position? Yes. So Carl Schmidt was the crowned jurist of the Weimar Republic, and he was very incredibly influential um, to political theory, to legal theory, and to international theory. And he takes this incredibly multidisciplinary approach when he's discussing these things. And so All of his theories are kind of riddled with international relations, with constitutional law, and it creates this picture that he wants to present to ultimately justify the reign of Adolf Hitler. So he starts writing these books in early Weimar Republic into late Weimar Republic, so the 1930s, and they're all centered on trying to start to justify what is happening in Weimar Germany. So 
you know, in the 1930s, the Nazi party begins to take power. And you see how more and more and more intense his literature gets once this starts unfolding. What I would like to say, particularly about Carl Schmitt, is his most popular kind of theory is friend versus foe. And this is where we start talking about who is included in the group and who is the in-group and who is the out-group. Friend versus foe is what it sounds like that a nation should be comprised of friends, of people who share what he says is a state and essentially ethnic identity. But more importantly, it's those who share a similar goal. So in Nazi Germany, who shares the similar goal? And that is the white Germans. And the outgroup is anybody who does not share these goals, who will not advance the constitution and the nation of whatever state that this law theory is employing. And so the job of the friends is to have incredibly strong bonds with their friends and push out the foes. And this is what he calls the nature of politics. Politics is all about the friend and foe distinction. And he's kind of the first one to say this, and this work was incredibly, incredibly big at the time that it was published. Underlying this friend and foe distinction is the preparedness to kill. It is the potential for physical killing of the foe to protect the friend, to protect the state. And that was the object of my inquiry. The term that I'm specifically looking into throughout all of my studies is Teutungbereitschaft, which means preparedness to kill. And Carl Schmidt, the entire idea of his politics and politics for him as a theory is that war is political, that killing is political. And not only is killing political, but it is necessary in most cases in order for a nation to truly be what he considers a nation. As an artist, as a thinker, I often value the role of imagination, which seems liberating. It's scary to think about how uh, dark a role imagination can play. You talk in your research about how the human subject in fascism can become an object of the state. And this has to do with how, how imaginary enemies arise. So how can normal people, ordinary citizens, so readily adopt the preparedness to kill that Schmidt talks about? And especially how do they adopt this idea of friend versus foe, who is friend and who is foe? I can answer by saying that when I mean mechanism and when I mean the human subject, I'm talking, of course, about us, you and me, the human who has a soul somehow being distanced from their personhood and from their own authority Mm. and becoming a utility of state power, becoming what I say mechanism, becoming a tool of the state to use and employ whatever its fascist agenda tends to be. And unfortunately, throughout history and with, you know, ultra nationalism, it is violent. And in large part, these imaginative ideologies that we were just talking about distances the person from their own beliefs through either, say, propaganda, through systems put in place by a particular power to ultimately become a a tool or a person that can be used 
to kill others in the out group. And this is a very morbid thing to talk about, but I believe it's, it's incredibly, incredibly important. And a lot of the historiography and the debate that I know that we'll get to later in this podcast is centered around the rebuttal of, say, German citizens, that they were simply following orders. And in a way, this is true. In a way, it is not. And it's incredibly more nuanced than I'm leading on. But killing and physical violence, especially in context of fascism, is something that we as a community need to discuss. So how did Schmidt respond to the rise of Nazism? What did it represent for him? He justified it by this state of emergency that he comes up with in his theories. And in this state of emergency, which can range from war to whatever the state deems being an emergency, a single leader can rise up and essentially take power. And we see this in the Fuhrer principle when Adolf Hitler took the position of the chancellor and the president in the Weimar Republic, soon to be like the Third Reich. But in the political community, and more importantly, the critical theory community, people are starting to write back at Schmidt. The best way that I can put it is that it is a Twitter argument (laughs) between very, very intelligent thinkers where if one tweets something, the others will respond. And it kind of has this chain that we see throughout the Weimar Republic era into the Third Reich and then post Third Reich. Where are these conversations happening, these debates between Schmidt and others? These are very lofty conversations. The average citizen is not reading what these thinkers are saying. However, critical theory and academic theory in general is incredibly influential. It trickles down. It has this trickle-down phenomenon. And that is honestly, I believe, a criticism that I have about academia, the fact that it isn't accessible, but that is the nature of it now and still back then. So these people are having conversations in their academic circles, publishing books, publishing journal articles, publishing pieces that get published in newspapers, perhaps, and opinion pieces about what is what is happening in Germany, specifically how Carl Schmidt is acting in Germany. And it creates this kind of microcosm of critical thinkers bickering for good reason back and forth and promoting liberal democracy or deeming it invalid. Can you talk a little bit about this field of critical theory and especially the Frankfurt School that emerges in part as a refutation of some of Schmidt's ideas? Mm-hmm. The Frankfurt School comes out of mainly Marxist theory and they focus on dialectic positivism, which are lines of philosophical thought. However, I think a very important thing to note is that critical thinkers are being influenced equally by the Frankfurt School's presence. So they may not necessarily be in the Frankfurt School, but the thought that is being generated in this school of social theory is astounding. So the fact that it is present is producing conversation, even if people aren't associated with the Frankfurt School. Mm. Primarily, a lot of the thinkers that come out of the Frankfurt School are Jewish. And that is very, very important to note when we start talking about uh, post-Holocaust. And these thinkers coming out with pieces post the mass murdering of their people. And so we see thinkers like Hannah Arendt, Theodore Adorno, Walter Benjamin, and all all of these people start emerging in popularity, either being in the Frankfurt School or not being in the Frankfurt School, because the discourse is so hot and heavy 
during this time. And the Frankfurt School is quite frankly scrambling to try to fix this kind of chip they see in German society. To say more specifically about Adorno. So who is Theodore Adorno and what is his role in this conversation? Yes, yeah, so Theodore Adorno writes this very interesting piece, and this is post-Nazism, called The Authoritarian Personality. And I think what's important to note is that the biggest question, and the only question, quite frankly, after the Holocaust and after the reign of Adolf Hitler, is how does this happen? And that's where we see a lot of the more, I would say, more direct theories about fascism emerge. And Adorno is asking this question, you know, what makes people susceptible to fascism? Kind of what is fascism? What is the, the personality of the person that leads fascist groups or who is fascist? And so Adorno actually has a similar-ish approach to Arendt, who we'll be talking about, where when he's trying to describe the human and the human subject underneath fascism, it is more or less empathetic. And when I say empathy, I don't mean empathy in that these people are trying to seek retribution for those who have killed or those who have been complicit, but rather that this happened to millions of Germans and millions of people worldwide. How do people become susceptible to these imaginative stories, these pseudo-histories, these pseudo-sciences, these ideologies? So this is what Adorno is kind of getting at. And what Adorno is particularly good at is discussing nationalism. So talking about identity and nationalism. Theodore W. Adorno argues that the human in fascism is living in rigid constraints. They are unable to challenge these friends that Schmidt talks about. And they also have constraints in authority and power. Hypernationalism kind of comes out of these constraints because identity and maintaining statehood is the only thing that exists for these people now. And this is kind of what I'm getting at when I'm talking about state mechanism as well, that people become utility in a certain sense when they're alienated from themselves and placed into the identity of the state. Can you tell me more about that alienation, how somebody becomes alienated from their own humanity, their own ability to see other people as humans? I must be honest, this has been up for debate forever, what alienation means. And when I'm talking about alienation, I'm meaning alienation from, from freedom, from self-autonomy. And I believe that you do have this, this self. You are your own subject existing under free, liberal regimes. But we see quite the opposite when we're talking about the human subject in fascism. It seems like people would gravitate toward the kind of freedom that democracy offers, that the ability to determine their own future and their capacity to live in society with others. How are people that one might regard as ordinary citizens willing to give that up? And what are they giving it up for when they get absorbed into this nationalist authoritarian personality? Well, that is the question we're all asking is... How can a person reject liberalism, which appears to be good, and go to fascism, which to them maybe appears to be better? I think it's more of an imposed condition, and that's why we see people turning to authoritarianism. It is living in constraint. Many people fled Germany. Many people did. Many Jews did. Many non-Jews did. Many minority groups were able to escape. So there were people leaving. 
and recognize the harsh conditions that they were in. But there were also people staying, and there were also people kind of reveling in their condition, this newfound power and sense of identity of being a white German. So I think it's a more of an unfair point of view to say, well, why are we choosing fascism over liberalism? However, at the same time, these are white Germans. They're placed in power in this regime. They're given identity. They're given statehood, and they're given community, and they're given promises. When you are existing in a system that benefits you to the utmost extent, I would say, why wouldn't these Germans stay? And this is why we have to think, you know, when we're talking about ideologies and fascist ideologies, well, how can we prevent these from even emerging? And how can people be less susceptible to them? And how do we encourage liberalism? And how do we foster liberalism? When looking at the rise of Nazism, and especially the horrors of the Holocaust, it has been tempting for people to depict it as a completely unimaginable evil that is so monstrous that it could never be reckoned with. One of the thinkers you talk about is Hannah Arendt and her concept of the banality of evil. Can you talk a little bit about how everyday citizens could be capable of being part of this mechanized murder machine, even though they don't seem particularly special or monstrous? So in large part, a lot of Arendt's approaches, and similarly, I'm drawing a lot from her. I, I very much look up to her theory. Uh, surrounding Nazism and the Holocaust, in talking about the German subject and what it means for the German subject underneath fascism, has always faced a considerable amount of criticism. This is similar to when Hannah Arendt published Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil in 1963, where she dubbed Adolf Eichmann, who was an officer of the SS, the Nazi police force, um, terrifyingly normal. So many like him, neither perverted nor sadistic. Positing a man such as Eichmann as banal in concurrence with Nazi genocide was to many, many people an atrocious error. The Holocaust, especially considering the idea that history is linear and that we always progress, could not have been a commonplace horror. And to many, the final solution, the mass murdering of millions of Jews, was a single moment crystallized in time. And Hannah Arendt is looking at the Holocaust in a way that is incredibly didactic, which means to present events that are mere surface phenomenon that happen on the surface. And these phenomenon reflect deeper subterranean currents of meaning. So essentially what Arendt's doing is she's looking at the Holocaust, at the atrocities, the horrors, the mass murder of millions of Jews, and her herself is Jewish, and saying, how can this man, Adolf Eichmann, who is short, who is not very attractive, you know, command a bunch of people to kill. And that's the question. And she's coming at this and she's looking at what a lot of people believe is human nature. That's always the argument is this is human nature. You know, war is human nature. And she's looking at it like, no, 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 no. Something is happening here. How can we prevent it? Because obviously something has caused it. And engaging with history in a different way. And so to return to your original question, I refrain from using like the term like mass killing machines like these are these are people and these are people killing other people. And many, many of the Nazi soldiers suffered alcoholism, drug use, suicide, 
even. And this is not to give them redemption, but this is to say that killing other people is hard. There has to be a reason why ordinary citizens are taken up into the army and given the opportunity to kill and told to kill on behalf of their state, and they do it. Going back to Adorno, this is what he's getting at, an authoritarian personality. This is what a lot of his work is focused on. How do power systems come into play when we're talking about the human subject? Hannah Arendt asks an equal question. How does power come into play? But more importantly, how do ideologies come into play? Because a lot of people believe what they're doing is right. And it's not. It seems like uh, one of the things that Arendt notes is the failure of thinking, the failure to think for oneself and to question the expectations. And so that this whole idea of just following orders actually reduces somebody to being a mechanism of the state instead of someone who's responsible for her own actions. Yes, yes. I would say that that is a fair thing to say about Arendt. Most importantly, I believe, when discussing Arendt, is that she has this type of worry. Like, she's worried that this could happen again. And she writes for The New Yorker about this banality of evil, this ordinariness of evil. Banal meaning ordinary. And it gets put out in The New Yorker newspaper. And she publishes this book, Eichmann in Jerusalem. But it faces so much backlash. To me it seems like she's simply worried. Like, this person is ordinary. I walk by an ordinary person on my street every day when I go to work. And he looks like one of these people that she sees every day. And it's not that she's saying that ordinary people are capable of being evil. What she's saying is that evil comes out of the commonplace. That evil comes out of the ordinary. Uh, We see this in Nazi Germany, where we have the most liberal constitution in Europe at this point, and the most atrocious evil rises out of it. And I posit that we're seeing this now. We're seeing evil and hate rise out of nothing, it seems like, out of everyday life. And it's permeating. What are some of the reasons Arant might be worried today? Uh, in her analysis of totalitarianism, Arant talks about the attractiveness of mental constructions, of ideologies that we've kind of brought up without directly addressing in this podcast. And it reduces reality, the complex nature of reality, to a very simple picture, to a threat most of the time. And they're cartoonish and they're untrue. And we now, you and I, look at some things that people may believe that are hateful and that are underlyingly fascist. And we think, how can they think this? But these are are attractive for some reason. They're passionate. And this poisonous kind of fiction manufactures enemies. And so I think kind of the next step is, well, why are we manufacturing enemies And who is manufacturing enemies? And how does this even benefit me to manufacture an enemy? And this is kind of what I'm getting at when we're talking about the person as utility for something or someone. Liberal democracy and liberalism in general and progressive tendencies allow us to be autonomous beings. 
And so how do people come to believe through these these stories that somehow they're liberated too by coming to these conclusions? Like when we're talking about conspiracy theories nowadays, people feel liberated that they understand the truth. And in reality, it's an incredibly cartoonish picture of what's really happened. So there's an interesting paradox there about the individual. Yeah, really. So these conspiracy theories, which often have people who are attracted to them wanting to question everything, which is a genuinely reasonable impulse, but taking this to totally unreasonable extremes. When you talk about conspiracies being on the rise right now, like conspiracy theories that are, again, very anti-Semitic, for example... What are some of the signs of concern in 2023? Yeah, anti-Semitism when we're talking about George Soros or these very, very wealthy Jewish people in positions of economic power, I think is being used a lot in these world order type of conspiracy theories. We saw this in Nazi Germany where Jews are going to take over the world, that they run the economy, that they're a threat they're an enemy. We must do something about this. And obviously, this is entirely untrue. George Soros is a wealthy man with his fingers in many pies, but there is no world conspiracy about this. And typically, what I think is interesting is that people, when they're engaging with propaganda, wrongdoers, what we would call wrongdoers, believe their actions are necessary. They think they're doing positive and they believe that they're doing the right thing. When they come to these grandiose conclusions in modernity, I think today we see this in censorship of minority groups. We see this in censorship of protest, which is a right that we have in the United States to protest. Equally, I, I'm seeing this in particularly Florida right now. Yeah. So can you talk about some of the spaces where there are signs for worry now? Definitely online all right spaces are I did a study with one of the professors at Trinity University on the online right, and I inherently kind of had to infiltrate the online right to collect data. And it was very, very scary for me as a woman to go through these online spaces. And they create echo chambers, and they create these imaginative ideologies that we're talking about. And the fact that these online alt-right spaces exist and are supported and are discussed is a problem. Um, January 6th, a direct threat to the U.S. constitutional democracy. The fact that that could even happen is a threat. When we're talking about online alt-right spaces where misinformation happens and propaganda happens, can you talk about how that relates to modern-day Russia? Yeah, we have evidence that Russia um, has been inciting and then placing propaganda online for the online alt-right in the United States to view. Additionally, we see this happening in their own country, which I think is very important to talk about in terms of the Ukraine conflict going on right now. Russia, I believe, is the best representation of Teutung Bereitschaft, of Carl Schmitt's philosophies of modern-day fascism that we can see playing out in an international landscape. You know, right to land, um, historical ownership of land, the belief that... There are sections in Ukraine that are Nazis. We have these ways that Russia is justifying the takeover and the usurpation of Ukrainians and 
ultimately the end of Ukrainian democracy. And thankfully, the entire international community recognizes this and is fighting back. But on online alt-right spaces, it's it's of concern where we see mythologies and we see pseudo-histories about the right of Russia to Ukrainian land being pushed. And again, this kind of shows as an example to how this can affect our modern American experience possibly in the future. It connects back to January 6th, and it's a definitely a point of concern and should be focused on more in terms of political theory. How do you see people who are pretty educated, pretty free-thinking, caught up in this mythologies in the Russian context? I believe it all goes back to state power and what the state particularly wants to push out to its population. I believe that you can be incredibly intelligent and you can be, quote unquote, a free thinker or an intellectual and be caught up into these systems. And that's kind of the whole point of Hannah Arendt's worry is that she's worried that there are educated people, that there are intelligent people that can be swept into this this type of rhetoric and fascism. And we see this happening in the Weimar Republic. To be fair, and this is the same with Russia, a lot of people are trying to escape. A lot of people are pushing back. A lot of the subculture is pushing back. And this happened in Weimar. And this is happening in Russia. And unfortunately, it is in terms of Russia being censored right now for the West to see. We don't see people in Russia fighting back against the Kremlin, and there most certainly are. And that kind of leads another question of why aren't we seeing this? Is it Russia? Is it us? What's happening in the international media space? But going back to the Weimar Republic and to America and to Russia, the thing that we all have in common is that we can be susceptible to fascism. And it can come from right underneath our noses. And that's why my investigation, and I believe that a lot of other people's investigations should start being of how can we prevent this and what causes it, because it it creepily creeps up. Do you know what we could do to prevent it? What what should ordinary U.S. citizens be on the lookout for or doing? I believe in totality that we need a reformation project and... This is something that I would like to focus on in later studies that I don't directly have an answer to now. But we do need to take a very empathetic approach. We cannot push people out into this fringe of society because that's what fosters these attitudes and slowly, like a seed, slowly, slowly begins to grow and pull other people in. So that's where I would start is to see where can we as progressive people begin to, by maintaining a a safe space for us as well, how can we be more empathetic to concerns? How does this relate to your future as a person who's been studying this and is going to continue exploring these questions? I mean, I, I guess by way of getting into these types of academic studies, I have a lot of people in my life who have succumbed to these ideologies. And my question is why, as all the thinkers before me, how does this happen? What can we do to prevent it? And particularly, how can we stop violence? You know, that's the importance of talking about preparedness to kill in Schmidt. I want to study political theory and graduate school and a PhD setting. And I want to continue asking these questions. And particularly, I want to ask questions that are provocative because I believe that academia needs to come back to that space where 
things are a little controversial. Mm. And urgent. And urgent. And we need to think about it. And I may be completely wrong. And I'm sure I'll look back on this in five years once I've gotten more academics under my belt and say, why did I say that? But the fact that we're even generating this conversation is incredibly, incredibly important. It needs to happen more. Yeah. So how has your education at Trinity formed your capacity to ask these provocative questions? Yeah, I've realized that I've just been drawn to these fields. It's been out of happenstance that I've accumulated three majors, particularly because I do have a love for academia. But also the the particular classes are focused on you know, politics, thinking deeper, World War II history. What does history mean? What does political science mean? How do we write philosophy? And to me, like these people in critical thought, the questions that I'm asking are incredibly multidisciplinary. They expand discipline. They go into other disciplines that I'm not even studying. And I think that us as a, an academic community need to join together because fascism is the threat and it's always been the threat to us as people. Thank you, Jordan Nelson. Yes. And I appreciate the urgent questions that you're asking and it gives me hope for the future. Well, thank you so much. In so many ways, your thinking is a testament to a liberal arts education. Not only does your work interweave history, philosophy, and political science, you show by example what it means to think and to investigate independently, not just get swept up in conspiracy theories or imaginative ideologies. More, you show how urgent the humanities are in a world torn by violence against civilians. It's as vital as ever for us to learn to use our words and to seek understanding. If you are in San Antonio and want to discover more about the arts and humanities, Trinity will host its first annual Autumn Festival of the Arts, November 3rd through 15th, here on campus. Attendees can come to see the Nivea Gonzalez paintings in the Nydorf Art Gallery and stay for world-class steering guest musicians in the Ruth Taylor Recital Hall. They can cross the courtyard for readings of faculty and student poetry and short stories in the Cafe Theater and watch the big musical The Prom in the Steering Theater. They can watch the Looney Crew hip-hop dance group perform in Laurie Auditorium after looking at student-made sculptures, photography, and installations, including Jordan Nelson's multimedia work. All events are free and open to the public. We hope to see you there. Thanks for listening.